This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today we celebrate music with a Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter, touring musician, and open-hearted philanthropist. She's a trailblazing independent artist who was the first pop star to have a number one single while not signed to a record contract. She has since produced numerous hit singles, recorded 15 albums, and designs and runs her own eyewear business. Her latest album, A Simple Trick to Happiness, is available wherever ears are interested. Coming up, to discuss best friends, a love of camp, and all things music, is Lisa Loeb. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. Hello, it's good to see you. I'm delighted to have you. You're somebody who has such a great spirit and such a interesting career, and I love the independence of how you started and kind of how you continue to grow your business. So thrilled that you accepted the invitation. Thank you. Well, it's, I, I love having a good conversation about creativity, the process, and I know you've talked to so many other really interesting folks, so it's, it's good to be in good company. I know that your glasses are a bit of a signature for you. When did you first wear eyeglasses as a kid? How old were you? You know, I am embarrassed to say, but I don't know. I know I should, but when I was really, really little, my best friend, Margaret, who's still one of my best friends, our mothers were friends when they were pregnant with us. We've known each other since we were born in the same hospital a month apart. But she got glasses when she was really little, like these light blue glasses. And I always thought glasses were so cool. So I wasn't one of those people who was upset when I got glasses. I was actually really excited. I think it was probably around seventh grade. I recently uh, was going through all my stuff in Dallas, Texas. I have all this stuff from childhood. And I found kind of like my museum of glasses. My <laughs> my kind of brownish, the uh, material looked like, like a translucent matte Coca-Cola, like that brown color. And it, and it was a very 80s look. And then there were some preppy glasses and then there were some new wave glasses. And finally... Little by little, I ended up in more of a cat eye look, which I think is more flattering. Yeah, and it, but it wasn't a stigma. So you, you were suddenly one of the cool kids when you had glasses. I just was me. I didn't think about glasses, no glasses. I mean, my friends and I kind of joked around about it. My friends and I have a dry sense of humor. We, we, when we were very little, you know, second grade, third grade, we used to reenact like Fibber McGee and Molly things and old radio shows and comedy shows. We would act them out and we loved like uh, Martin Mull and things like that in third grade. So we'd always joke around and say, oh, glasses, braces, you know, all those things like, ah, you don't want to have all those things. I, I, yeah, I don't know if there was a stigma. And if there was, it kind of fit me too. And it kind of does today. I am kind of like a sexy librarian. So, you know, I'll take that. I do love to read. So it, it, it all works out. Well, you know, I, I always sometimes wonder how we define ourselves when we're younger and how it impacts our voice later. 
in life. You know, sometimes people will look in the mirror even when they've lost weight and they still see a little kid that, that's heavy. Yeah. I didn't know whether or not having glasses as a kid made you a early nerd or something. Yeah, which is funny too, because I was trying to explain to my kids, like now nerd is kind of a cool thing. Like people get it. Nerd really means the kind of people you want to be friends with. They're, they're the people who are super interested in certain things. And that makes you a nerd. And um, there's much more warm, cozy feeling around that word than when, when I was growing up where a nerd was like an outcast and, you know, a pencil protector. But I think either had pretty good messages coming at me when I was growing up or I, I filtered through them and only tried to take in more of the positive messages about, you know, it's important to be yourself. And I know by the time I was in college, I wrote a song where the chorus was, don't be afraid to be yourself you'll get nowhere being someone else. And if you do, it won't be you going somewhere. I think there was often a push and pull growing up, especially in high school and, and middle school about, you know, who were considered the sort of the popular kids and who were considered the more like alternative kids on the outside. I, I didn't ever fit in those groups exactly. I had some really close friends. I was friendly with lots of people. I wasn't a popular, beautiful cheerleader. I, I didn't feel totally alone and outcast into some alternate place. And yet my friends and I were like alternative. We liked alternative music and silly humor and maybe did things that other people didn't do. But somehow we still felt like we fit in. I don't, I don't know how to explain it. But, and I was a very shy child. I was a very shy child. When you did come to music, did you come to it uh, like when you got your very first 45 or something do you remember like what the first song that made a big impact on you from an artist was um music was always really in the house so ever since i was a little kid i, I can't even remember because music was everywhere like i would sit on my dad's lap while he played piano he'd play songs that were standards out of the big fake book that we had you know all the classics from the the 20s 30s 40s 50s he would play songs that were popular, like Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. We would play you know, as nice Jewish songs, like all the Christmas songs we'd gather around and play. Uh, or Here Comes Peter Cottontail. In fact, right now I'm making a new record that has a lot of those songs that he used to play, like Don't Fence Me In and Peter Cottontail. A lot of old-timey songs. And then we also had a record player and had a lot of records playing there. And my parents loved musical theater and classical. And we listened to the radio a lot. So there were all the pop songs and the soft pop songs of the 70s and bubblegum pop songs. So there was always music everywhere. I always loved it. And my older brother ended up being a classical pianist. So there was a lot of classical music. I played piano also. It was expected that you just took piano lessons. And I actually enjoyed it. I started writing music when I was like six years old. Oh, wow. I just liked it. I don't know. It was just sort of the way it was supposed to be. Yeah. It sounds like it was ever present in the family and the household. So my family, there wasn't so much music. And so I, I remember trading some Hot Wheel cars for a Ventures 45 of Wipeout. Ooh. So I came home, though, with this 45, and we didn't even have a record player to put it on. At that moment, I was like, oh, did I make a oh bad trade? Gosh. But I realized it was a... It was a good trade when I finally heard it. I remember my friend Margaret, the same person who had glasses, she gave out 45s for her sixth grade birthday party. And I had to trade somebody because I think I think I wanted This Is It by Kenny Loggins. I think that was the one I got. But we loved music so much in my house. I have four brothers and sisters and we would we would just listen to Queen Night at the Opera album over and over and over again. And my little brother liked Kiss and we loved Elton John and it's a beautiful day and 
the mamas and the papas, but there was a lot of rock, a lot of rock, but especially Queen, Elton John was really big. I mean, that was when I was really little and, and it went from there. Oh, Sergeant Pepper was a big one. My other best friend, Adrienne, her father had a great record collection. He was a little younger than my parents and he had a little bit less of a 1950s record collection and a little bit more of like Frank Zappa, which we weren't allowed to listen to, but like the Beatles, the Stones, and we would take records, but Sergeant Pepper was a big one. What a luxury to have two best friends. I mean, not a lot of people had their other best friend. Oh yeah, we were like <laughs> a trio, but also we also had other best friends, you know, like Karen Brown and Angie Berry. And I just, I, I have, I'm a very nostalgic, sentimental person. Um, we're talking on video right now, even though you can just hear our voices, but behind me, you see a stack of all my yearbooks. I went to the oh, same school it. for 11 oh. years and my summer camp books. Like I love making friends. By the way, you're talking to a very nostalgic guy. All of my comedy yeah. and my career is always reflective and retrospective because there's so much joy, I think, in filtering through the things that bring light to your life. So I do know camp it was a big theme for you in growing up and that you went on to write a, a musical about camp and you've created a foundation to send kids to camp. So I'd love to kind of dive into that while we're talking about it. You know, first of all, what was your first camp song that you wrote after you, when you started to write a camp album? It's funny. It's a long story because I, I just started making kids records. I made a bunch of grown up records. I, I'd been asked to make a record by Barnes and Noble who was going to try releasing records themselves instead of going through the record labels. And I'd always wanted to make a kid's record because I loved Free to Be You and Me when I was little. Marlo Thomas's record about values. And I also loved Carol King's record, Really Rosie, where she put Maurice Sendak's books to music. And it was just so cool sounding. And I wanted to do something from like that 70s where, you, where there was so much crossover between what kids stuff was and grown up stuff. It had this great sweet spot for things that were earnest, sometimes funny, clever, heartfelt, you know, appeal to all ages. I just... I, I loved that kind of tone and storytelling. So I made this record. I decided to make a kid's record for Barnes & Noble, and I wasn't sure I was going to do more of it, but there was, you know, a lot of people were excited for me to make another kid's record. So I thought, what music do I love that might resonate? And it was summer camp songs, and especially sleepaway camp songs. I went to camp outside of Austin, Texas, where you are now, and for about five years in a row. I had started working with collaborators because I realized that was a great way to get things finished. I can often spend way too much time doing things and get sidetracked. So I was working with my friend Michelle Lewis, who loves camp also, and her husband, who's a songwriter, who didn't know about camp but was helping us write, Dan Petty. And I don't know what the very first song we wrote. I wanted to make a, a record of summer camp songs, some classics from when I was growing up which was funny, I had to do a little research because some of the songs, I couldn't quite remember the melodies. So I was getting in touch with my old friends who I'd gone to camp with and they were sending me cassette tapes. One of the songs that I think stands out to me the most is a song we wrote called The Disappointing Pancake. And it was a song that was loosely based on the uh, inanimate object food item songs like On Top of Spaghetti, All Covered with Cheese. So we wanted a song with lots and lots of lyrics that had some kind of moral tale that uh, followed an inanimate food object. So we chose a pancake that was very disappointing at breakfast for dinner. But throughout the song proves that it had so many different other important purposes in life. The disappointing pancake is a bit like me, you and me. It's a not so disappointing pancake. And that was exciting because then also Steve Martin came and played banjo oh. on the song. So it was kind of like this unbelievable 
moment of the exact person who embodied that 1970s heart, humor, silliness, cleverness, being here playing on this song where we were trying to capture that exact tone. He put the pancake on his hand and like a glove it fit. And then he caught the final ball he surely would have missed. And they cheered and they cheered and they cheered and they cheered for the disappointing pancake. I love it. A duet for Steve Martin and Pancake. When I first started out playing uh, as a singer-songwriter with my guitar and often with a band, as somebody who loved rock music so much growing up, I didn't want to be seen as a folky. I wasn't a folk musician. And yet here I was with this children's music and I've realized I now am a folky. The children's music I make is really folk music. It tells stories. Those often are songs that I play in my grown-up concerts because grown-ups like to hear those fun, funny stories with good melodies and they're, it's like a folk music moment. But you wrote so many songs about relationships that you were in. Oh yeah. Again, I'm not a singer-songwriter, but did that ever complicate things in the relationships or were they typically written after they were over? Just like a lot of other songwriters, I think I take different bits and pieces of what's actually happening or a fleeting moment where something hits you, an emotion or a situation, and, and it may create a phrase or a series of words that I write down. And then I end up writing a whole song about that that may not actually be the truth. It's, it's a fictional thing. Or if something is so true, but and it's important to me to get it out there, I'll probably fictionalize parts of it. I may just lie and tell somebody it's not about them. Right. <laughs> I've taken really negative emotions and flipped them 180 degrees and turned it into the most serious love song ever. I often set little assignments for myself, like after being on tour with Lyle Lovett, I thought, God, if I could just write a song like he writes these great stories with characters, and when people hear them for the first time, they know exactly what they're hearing. It's not simplistic, it's just communicated so well. So I, I make little assignments for myself, whether it's types of songs, or wow, I want to try to write a song with not a lot of lyrics, or I want to write a song with a really repetitive chorus, or I want to write a song that is the first thing that comes to my mind when I sit down and play guitar. Like I, I give myself little assignments, and then sometimes it's cool because like a movie or a TV show will come along and they want you to write a specific song for a scenario that, that doesn't exist. I think it's only recently that I really started writing more directly about what I'm really going through because to me that, that turned out to be something that is a goal of mine to be able to really communicate that because I think those are some of the songs that connect with people best. You've just said something that the listener can learn from is that those little assignments, those that checklist of things you're setting goals, and the goals aren't write a hit song. The goal is write a song without many lyrics, which is an interesting, achievable goal. Yes, definitely. Yeah, writing a hit song is very distracting. And also, if you've ever had a hit song, which I've had a couple, one of my songs, which was, I think, top 20 or top 40, called I Do, it was when the record company said, you got to go write singles for your record. And I was so mad. I was like, really? I'm like those behind the scenes, VH1 behind the scenes, and then the record company made you write a hit song. <laughs> I was sitting in Los Angeles, I was living in New York City, but I was in LA finishing my record, and I was sitting in a conference room I had gotten permission to use at a hotel by the beach, and I was sitting on the floor with my coffee, and my papers all, all laid out in front of me with my lyrics, and I was so mad, and I wrote a song about the record company making me write a hit song, and that became a hit song. 
it's unusual. It is unusual, but I will say you did something else there, which is you wrote true to the emotion you were in. Exactly. which And so the emotional content, you feel the fervor. The song, you think when you hear it, it's a love song, but it, it's not a love song, actually. You write about heartache and heartbreak and emotional oh, yeah. earthquakes. There's themes and even themes of depression and so forth. And yes. yet there's hopeful outcome in these songs or at least a self-awareness that it's worth living through it. Yes, I think I think after years of living, feeling, being in different places emotionally and psychologically, the training that I got the best was probably a kind of a cognitive behavioral therapy type of attitude where I, I would be able to sink into depressions and stuff when I was younger. I remember a friend told me that their shrink told them, don't sink too far into the depression because it's hard to get out. Like try to buoy yourself out of it before you go too far in, which is helpful. And some advice from my rabbi who likes to talk a lot about cognitive behavioral therapy as well, looking at life the way it is. And sometimes you can look at things from a different way and you end up getting out of the depression creatively. Oh, I can't write any songs. It's terrible. It's like, well, actually I have written songs and most writers will say it's hard to write songs. It's it's typical that it's hard to write songs. And now all of a sudden I'm not as depressed about it as, as I was. So it's very important to see things the way they are. And I have an album called The Way It Really Is because it's all about you got to look at life the way it is before you make any changes or, or, or know like what direction to go in. It's also good to take a break when things get too hard and too overwhelming to notice when you're getting overwhelmed and you're sinking into a place you don't really want to be. And then also it's not about just ignoring what's happening. You want to digest your feelings and recognize them. And that's something I'm still working on, but like really digest and recognize your feelings, which songwriting is a great place to do that. But also as a songwriter or somebody who wants to write a finished thing, don't put so much pressure on the finished thing. Sometimes it is the process. It's important just to write junk, which is another one of my favorite, favorite teachers, Natalie Goldberg. And she says, write the worst junk in the world. You don't worry about writing the best junk in the world, but, but you, you, so anyway, so before you look at things from different angles, you also have to experience the experience. So you're not just totally pushing off your life and your feelings. You want to digest them. And then you also want to get out of them a little bit. You want to like refocus, look at things from a different perspective. And I think that message ends up coming across in a lot of songs. It's, it's definitely like, wow, life can be hard and it's worth going through, you know, life it's, this is a tough time, but there may be a way out. You know, like I end up writing songs like that often, right. even when it's kids' music. I, I, I did notice that. And, you know, somebody I was talking to on this podcast talked about grief. And you don't just turn it off. It doesn't go away, right? So you have to accept that it's going to ride in the sidecar with you and be on the trip. So I'm, I only use yeah. that as an example of those emotions that you might be experiencing. And you can't just be depressed and write a jingle for a Disney movie at the same time. Well, you can, unfortunately. I was gonna say the Sherman brothers did that quite successfully. If, if you know their work, they were Disney's yeah. boys, right? Yeah, no, I love their work. I got to meet one of them actually. Oh, well, the song Wonder that you have on your newest album, I believe, yes, felt yes. like it was in the vein of the Sherman brothers. You know, I wrote that song with an amazing songwriter called K.S. Rhodes, he's brilliant. And we got together to write a song. We were asked for an assignment to write a song that was kind of like a Mr. Rogers song. And there, I think there was a particular song they wanted us to write a song like. And it was a very Sherman Brothers type of song, full of that wonder. And so we called it Wonder. 
Everything is magical and full of mystery. Oh, there's so much wonder in the world waiting for you to find. We were finding that place. It's very emotional, nostalgic. It, it definitely pulls at your heartstrings. It seems like a very safe place to take people in yeah. that particular song. And I guess it's an adult song, it, but it speaks to all ages. And yes. I guess I like that. I, I have a show called The Wonder Bread Years, which is a nod back to baby boomer growing up, coming of age. As my parents used to call it, real bread. Real bread. You know, there's like real real <laughs> lettuce, which is iceberg lettuce. Right. Can we have a salad with real lettuce, please? Right. Well, I remember getting peanut butter and jelly on whole wheat bread at a friend's house, and I was just like, what? And it had like apricot jelly instead of grape wow. jelly. And I was like, huh? The real butter in our house was for company, right? We didn't even get to have that. I didn't know about butter. It was all about oleo. Yeah. Well, you're an independent artist. You began as an independent artist. And can you just speak to the importance of learning everything you can when you're doing that? Because there's so many parts of the business besides writing a song that when you're independent, you have to take responsibility for. Yeah, it's true. You know, I started as an independent artist, I think like a lot of people do, just because, you know, I'm in college or high school and I'm trying to get some gigs and my friend and I have a band and then we want to record some stuff. So we got to find a studio. And and then I also started learning how to record myself. I never fully went down that road. I'm, I'm getting back there now again. Um, but I found that it was distracting me from writing. And there were other people I could work with who were much better at that aspect. But I do like producing music. But you just do it yourself and, the more, and you get this kind of creative control and that you have a vision and then you realize, oh, you want to get it out there. So how do you get music out there? You call college radio stations and high school radio stations and indie radio stations and see if they'll play your cassette, which you figured out how to have manufactured and work with your friends to get the artwork made and writing your own music and putting your band together. And then in my day, making flyers and hanging those flyers up. And then maybe you have so many flyers to hang, you need an assistant and a friend says they'll help you out. You know, it's like very practical. I was very interested in high school. My friends, these same friends and I used to interview bands. We would find bands in town who were coming to town, uh, national bands, and we would interview people like The Alarm and we'd go to record stores and meet bands. And we weren't groupies. We were just interested in the behind the scenes. Yeah, I would interview people. We'd, we'd try to get it on film, like literal film. I had a radio show and I just loved the business of music too. It was very interesting to me. And I was very lucky that very early on, I just naturally compartmentalized the creative side of music and the business side of music. So in my brain, the right way to do things is you make things that you love and then you try to figure out how do you get them out there. So you don't end up like selling out because you're just making things. I mean, I do know that there is definitely a lure to understanding what else is out there and understanding what's popular. And do I want to do some of that or not? Maybe, maybe not. But I think even when, when artists get signed to record labels like I did, I had great advice that was, you know, when you get signed to a label, your career hasn't been made. It's just one of the steps, and it could be terrible, actually. And it was wonderful at times when you're doing well with a record label. It's great because they're doing all the jobs and promoting your songs to radio and helping you get press. But when it's not going well, it's really impossible to get yourself out there because it's not like when you're totally independent and you know that your record will always exist and you're, you always want to share those songs definitely until you make the next record, which is the new record. 
but probably past that. You don't see things in such short cycles like record labels do. And also there's there's midpoints when you're independent, when you're working with a major label or a boutique label where you hire an independent publicist. I was wondering why all these musicians were geniuses and I wasn't a genius. Like, how come I'm not a genius? And I realized <laughs> it's because they put it in the PR. They put it in the press release. Like, you got to tell people what you want them to know and, and sort of guide them. But anyway, I think being an independent artist, it means something different today than it meant back in the late 80s, early 90s when I was really starting out. Now there's a whole other level of commitment involved with social media. Make, you know, just just send a video of yourself. Just just record it yourself. Back in the day, we had clothing, wardrobe budgets, and hair and makeup budgets. Now everyone's their own hair and makeup person and wardrobe person and photographer and engineer and videographer and and all of that. And there's this whole other level of kind of finding your way in marketing and figuring out how much you want to share of yourself personally. Does it work with who you are as a musician or a creative person? There's just so much, I think, on all of our plates now. Yeah, well, I think the vibe and the voice and all of that with the democratization of distribution, which is you can record this in your bedroom and upload it and it's in the world globally. Like later that day. For good and bad, right? So your worst things out there and your best things out there. And if the authenticity and or the lyric, people can go viral and become a sensation quite instantly. I think it takes the intimidation out of the making because as you said, when you captured things on film, you used to have to take it back somewhere and then develop it. And then you had to splice it. And you had to go through all this trouble, which also meant that the medium of film was precious. Definitely. Don't shoot too long on this shot because we need some film for the next shot. Yeah. Now their camera is their studio. Their telephone is their network for everything. Yeah. And same with music. I mean, it used to be expensive to go into a studio and use real tape. I mean, you could record over, but still, it was expensive and time-consuming, and you have to rent storage for all your old tapes, which on one hand is good because you want to do your best and have a really high level of, of work because it feels very permanent versus now where you could you have endless amounts of recording space anywhere. But that being said, I think there's more room for experimentation now that there's so much more... You don't have to be worried about the limits of the cost of film. And it's really amazing that we can get music right out there. You can put anything out there that you want into the universe, but there still is this element of marketing, which basically means seeing how you can get people's eyes and ears on what you're doing, seeing how you can connect with people, and then also make a living, you know? Yeah. And I do admire this about you because not all artists have a business brain. They don't necessarily have interest in it they don't necessarily take it in i find that i had two sides of my brain as a comedian and as a writer and then ultimately all of those things you talked about doing about the flyers and everything you become a producer by having to produce things you have to put a show on you have to fix your costume you have to get your instrument tuned every element of it is logistics and over time what you don't realize is you graduated from producing school 10 years ago because you just had to figure out a route. You had to block the booking dates. You had to order the merchandise. Set up the photo shoot, yeah. And and you get to know all of these different aspects, which it's neat when you do get to a level of success again or in certain areas or different projects where you do have a team and you can work together to do things and you trust people to do it. But it's also neat to be in situations where sometimes it is still, let's put on a show and you're working with a photographer to make sure you like the lighting and that you have the backdrop that you want. You're able to communicate with others 
because you have some experience in all of these different fields. And it's also there's a creativity to the business side of entertainment. There's something creative about that, but there's always something more to learn. You're creating all the time at different rates, but you realize somewhere along the way that you have a toolkit for creating things. It really is free to us. I, I discovered during the pandemic that while we didn't have venues or we couldn't do production in a, in a way where we had a crew together, we still had the ability to write or to get our voice out in some way. And it costs you nothing in a way. At the same time, it costs you everything because you have to expose your deepest thought or your vulnerability in order for it to have some value to the people who are watching. Yeah, you know, I tried to do some YouTube videos I was excited about doing. Partially because on the business side, I heard it was a great way to connect with people and to grow your fan base, which is really fun to do, reach more people. I run into lots of people who stop me at airports and say, oh, you, you had that song in the 90s. Do you still play music? And that's so shocking to me because I've had TV shows. I you know just put a record out I'm on in the airport traveling to play a sold out show in a theater. You can be walking into a theater full of people coming to see you and yet the people at the hotel across the street they don't know what you've been doing for the last 25 years. But but anyway, so I was going to make these YouTube videos, and I have a sound for technology, especially at the beginning of the COVID lockdown, which is, eh. I was like, eh, I got to shoot myself from the front part of the camera, and I got to line up my, where's my light, and where's my, uh, and I got to figure out how to the microphone and how to record this thing, and I don't even know the lyrics of the song I'm trying to record. Like, everything was like, ah. Oh. It was really exhausting. I was like, why can't I just write a song and people hear it and they love it. And then they wave their, their lighters in the air for me and I sell Kajillion records. But anyway, so it's, yeah, I did, we did make a lot of stuff during the lockdown. Also a lot of live streaming shows, a lot of connection with fans. And also I got together with a group of graduates from Brown university and we wrote a musical. Was that the together apart musical? Yeah, we wrote a musical. I, I kind of forget sometimes, but we had a, a zoom reunion with pages and pages of friends who studied musical theater and theater at Brown. We started talking about experiences that we loved doing while we were at Brown. And I, as everybody was talking, everybody was very animated and had a lot to talk about. And, and the emotions were all over the place, crying, laughing, warm-hearted feelings, humor. I said, you know, we should write a musical that exists in Zoom, that takes place in this medium, you know, where the limitations are, it must exist in these Zoom windows. So. We ended up, after many, many meetings, making a musical that was 10 many musicals because we realized we couldn't write one long musical. It, and we had so many different stories to tell. And we wrote a musical called Together Apart. And over like 100 grads from Brown were involved with 10 different writing teams. And we raised $60,000 for the Actors Fund. And we got to write with each other and connect with each other over a period of time and learn how to work with each other over Zoom as well which in some cases works better than others because of the delay, but it was such an amazing experience. Does it still exist out there as a link or something that people can see? You know, that is a good question. I think my friend and I, who are the main producers, we're going to get it in an archive so that people could watch it. I think we need to follow up on that. I think we both got very busy with our families and our kids. There was a whole thing with the union. Ah. We had specific regulations about what we could and what we couldn't do. I see. We had limited release for it. Even there may be a chance to put certain pieces of it up online with permission. But you did, after writing it, it was performed with not just the writers. It was recorded and performed, yeah. yeah. We learned how to professionally produce and shoot our own pieces 
with earbuds and playback and recording and all this stuff. Variety from piece to piece of the, the level of production, but in general, it all works together. And it was even interesting for me because I usually work a lot with my manager and producers. Producers meaning not like, like I always produce or co-produce my music, but when there's an event or a big thing, I'm usually asked to be a part of it. I don't help put it on. So helping coordinate people and conversations and creative discussions with different teams where I'm not even one of the writers on some of the pieces, you know, just being involved in, in, in different ways, as well as being an actor and a singer and a writer. So in your acting career, because I know that you've done guest spots on lots of things, you've been in some commercials, probably there's times you're playing yourself and other times you're playing a character. Yeah. What's your favorite part of that creative process as a performer when you're an actor? Are you doing it often and sometimes not singing at all? Or is it always call for something musical? Well, in a perfect world, I would actually just be acting. I would have a role, you know, where I've, I'm on a show every three episodes or so. A recurring role at a studio near my house in Los Angeles. I studied acting a lot growing up. And it was something that I thought that was my main thing that I wanted to do when I was growing up. And then little by little, I was always writing music. And music also became very central as soon as I was you know, 13 or 14. But I was still doing a lot of acting and, and theater and stuff growing up. But music really took off. And so I really focused on that. But I used to love, especially with theater, really getting into a character, really getting my lines down so well that it was like you were just speaking. You were just that character. I love that. As a musician, I've been asked to play myself a lot on a lot of different shows. And at first, I kind of was not wild about it because I was a real actor and I don't want to play a cameo of myself. But then I realized it was really fun to be on the sets of all these different communities of people. I was literally on the set of a TV show community about a boy. The nanny, I played a character. I, I really wanted the management character from Spinal Tap to be brought back. And so they did that. They did that in The Nanny. And Fran Drescher played herself as the manager that she plays in Spinal Tap, and I was her assistant. But anyway, I mostly, I play cameos of myself, and I work with the writers to make sure that my character works with their culture and their tone of their show, but also with it basically within the realms of who I am. It can be a caricature, but that's really fun. It's fun to be on those sets. It's And then what I really enjoyed recently was being on at a show called Fuller House, which was based on Full House, where they actually wrote me in as myself, but I actually had a couple of scenes where as an actor, it was fun for me to get to memorize my lines and work on throughout the week, work on the scene and actually be, be natural. You know, it's hard to, to be natural as a human on TV. So it's really fun to actually get in a place where I can actually act. I think in a perfect world, I would do theater at some point, because like I said, that's the best way to really get into a role. That would be amazing also to actually get to to do a role where you really invest yourself in time into something that tells a story that's like one of her favorite movies. That would be so cool. Although I was in like Hot Tub Time Machine too, but I played myself. It was very fun and funny and fun to be on the set. So I enjoy it for sure. And did the end credits say uh, Lisa Loeb as herself? I think it was Lisa Loeb as the Cat Wrangler. I see. I play the Cat Wrangler on the video of a set for my song, Stay, but I was never myself. Craig Robinson is me, and I'm working on the set, weirdly. I see. That credit as themselves, to me as a kid, was the highest level of credit you could get. <laughs> Davy Jones as themselves. Right. Well, I always saw Johnny Carson, who I admired as a presenter. But if he was in oh, a movie, yeah. he was always interviewing somebody or doing something. And it would say Johnny Carson as himself. And I thought, you really made it if you get to 
That was just my perception as a kid. So when I was a writer on Seinfeld, I got to be the studio audience warm-up comic. Oh, wow. It was a short straw I drew and not the greatest job in the world. But one episode came up where they were shooting the fake pilot of the show, and they asked me to to be the warm-up comic, and I said, only if you'll give me the credit, Pat Hazel, as himself. <laughs> it was like my one negotiating moment. That's hilarious. I always thought opposite. I was like, uh-uh, it's not really acting, but but then they give you lines, and you're supposed to be yourself, but you're not playing yourself, and it's this weird, awkward moment. Yeah, that's a little weird. But I've started enjoying it in this TV show, AP Bio. I play a version of myself. The kind of person who would throw, I threw plates at this guy that I was dating and broke them <laughs> on the wall. Like in real life, I never would do that. But it was fun to do a heightened different version. And it was a fun thing to learn and work with an acting coach. Like, how do you get that angry? And how do you like throw dishes while you're still saying your lines that you memorized? I mean, that's just so unusual. It's not necessarily a part that I would naturally be cast in. I'm, I'm more cast in like as a teacher or someone's best friend. But how would you like it though? If you saw a thing where somebody else was playing Lisa Loeb, would that be more awkward? That's kind of hilarious. That probably would be more awkward. Actually, that happened once. I remember I was watching Mystery Science 3000, which I loved that show. And they had an episode in which Lisa Loeb had snuck into the spaceship and couldn't get out. And she was singing <laughs> that song, Stay. And she was walking around as if she was walking around the loft in the video. And it was me. And it was hilarious. I got their number from a friend of mine who worked at Comedy Central and I called while they were in there, like their, their staff meeting. And I was like, hi, it's Lisa Loeb. And they're like, uh, hello. It's like, <laughs> I saw that episode. You know, I acted like I was mad at first, but I was actually excited. And then they sent me free stuff, which is so cool. Like Mystery Science Theater Watch or like a pocket projector or something. Right. Well, that's uh, how I always felt when I saw people on The Simpsons. Now they were animated but th yeah. they would be the actual singer or the actual actor would voice it. And that must have been a pretty flattering invitation to be on The Simpsons. Oh, totally. You know you've made it when you're playing yourself on The Simpsons. I've been on a number of animated shows, usually not as myself, though. I'm usually a character. Yes, and I saw you on a Geico commercial, I believe. Yes, and I did play myself on that. And that was really funny, too, because I'd seen those other Geico commercials, and I thought they were really funny. And we're not in the 90s anymore where when you were in a commercial, you were selling out. Now it's like a lauded, exciting moment. And I got to work with the writers. They were really gracious. They, we worked together to take what they were coming up with and, and make sure it was something I could stand behind, you know, because it was me playing myself. Well, you were asked, though, to create a crossword puzzle for the New York Times for the yes. 75th anniversary, right? Uh, that was an iconic moment for me. When I was a little kid, I would look at the crossword puzzle and I would just flatline, kind of like when I would watch certain programs on PBS. I was just like, uh, it's like kind of boring. And then my brother started getting super into the New York Times crossword and he's really good at it. He and his friend Allison, they used to compete on who could do the crossword in less subway stops. Wow. Or my brother would do the Sunday crossword, just all the downs, not the, not the acrosses. But little <laughs> by little, I got sucked in and I'm a, such a huge crossword puzzle fan. And the New York Times is the iconic one. So when I got an email from Will Short, it was like Johnny Carson had emailed me. It was like a huge deal. And he said that they were having a variety of collaborative crossword puzzle writing for a special anniversary. And so I got to write a crossword puzzle at my kitchen table with a crossword puzzle writer. And we worked together. It was like writing a song. And, I, and he showed me how people write 
crossword puzzles and there's certain apps that you can use as well. That was a dream come true. Well, I would think that as a lyricist and a person who loves wordplay, it would be a really interesting, natural thing to have fun doing. It was unbelievable. I go to this uh, trade show for music instruments called NAMM, N-A-M-M, and I met Mr. Peavy, the man who whose company made my first amp, my PV amp. And I met Mr. Taylor, Bob Taylor, who creates my <laughs> guitars. And all this weird, crazy behind the scenes who makes my strings. And, and here I was like behind the scenes of the New York Times crossword puzzle meeting the editor. I mean, that's like behind the scenes. That's amazing. You've had quite a interesting amount of opportunities that have sprung from the idea that your words and your lyrics of your song, you were writing songs before you had the first platinum song, but to splash on the scene independently like that and just have people today still singing the words to that song, I'm sure, continues to be an entree to many things. Yes, and it's also an entree now that that song is so popular. It's the entryway meat, just like for vegetarians, like bacon. Like people come to see that song at a concert and then they hear that there's other songs. I have had a few songs in the top 40, but that one's really the biggest hit and, and it can be a blessing and a curse. People can really like to throw around like one hit wonder. I'm like, I'm not a one hit wonder. I have other hits. If I take that away and, and again, like reframe it in a way and realize it's really exciting to even have one song that people really connect with and they connect with it today. And it's given me so many opportunities. And and it was a song that was a good song to be a hit for me because it's a weird song. It's it's a typical kind of songs I would write. It's not a real straightforward song. It's not typical verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, chorus type of song. It's the kind of song that if somebody said, you have to write more songs like that, I'm happy to try to figure that out and write more like that. So it's, it's, I, I was very lucky that way, and I, I appreciate being able to have a song like that. Well, let me mention your new album, because there's plenty of fantastic songs on this album, which is called A Simple Trick to Happiness. And I saw on your website, I think I watched a video of the song Shine, where the lyrics said something, keep your heart open wide, go be a star, love who you are and all of that is affirmational and music is such a powerful emotional leader for us when we're in our cars and even when things are down and out or things aren't going right other people's music can guide us in a direction that can change our mood or our perspective i applaud you for what's going on in this particular album it's funny too because I, I did collaborate on a lot of the songs with other people but just like you said that was actually the purpose was I wanted to write songs that were really current and really close to me personally and I really wanted to write songs that are kind of like when you write yourself a note on a post-it and you stick it on your mirror like songs that you carry with you throughout the day and some of them almost end up like prayers like even when I'm on stage singing the songs it reminds me of the messages in the songs and so we came up with all these different songs. And one of the examples I kept giving was Walking on Sunshine by Katrina and the Waves. Oh, sure. We don't have anything that's as happy or as uplifting as that, but you hear that song and you can't help but carry it with you. So I, I wanted songs like that that you do carry with you. I wanted it to feel like something that you were going to take with you. And, and you were quoting the song Shine. I do have videos for all of the songs. You can find them on my official YouTube channel. And I worked with all the directors. We, we worked all together to, to create the images that you see so that the videos resonate with what the songs are about. But in the song Shine, it does start with all the small things that happen today could be the big things that get in your way. But don't lose the 
Don't lose the spark in your eyes. Keep your heart open wide. So it, it, it always starts with that place like, yeah, things could suck. But you know what? You're strong. You can get through this. Well, I'm reminded of another interview where you talked about the lyrics. I think it was from Snow Day, um, which were a reminder that you're not too tired for this life, I think is the thing that you said. Yeah, and it's not going to matter if you fall down twice. It's true. Like it was, it was written from a very low place and a very sad and frustrated place where I knew it's really important to like let those feelings out. And that song is letting out those sad, sad feelings in, through an entire song. But by the end, and you're going to be okay. You're not too tired to live. You'll be okay. You can get through this. Well, thank God you found your voice in this industry versus being a pharmacist where you would, could try pills or something. <laughs> yeah, Take this and you'll feel great. Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, let me ask one other kind of merchandising question because you're quite a great marketer and you have a great store of products and your eyeglasses, of course, really important, the Lisa Loeb eyewear line. I, I guess I wonder with the last name Loeb, if you ever thought about expanding into earrings. Ooh, I never, I cannot believe I never thought of that. That, and also I have seen lately a lot of posts, every once in a while it comes up again, they say something like right behind the frontal lobe and the there's a lobe that only hears what it wants to. Ah, it's right. called the Lisa lobe. And that's kind of funny too, if there's some brain thing in there, but I like that. I like that. Well, I mean, it feels like the accessories that might go with the glasses. I like that. I like a good wordplay. I love it. Fantastic. You are awesome. Folks can go to lisalobe.com to see what's new, to hear the album, to look at the eyewear. You're so good at cross-promoting that it's all there. Well, we try to be thorough. That's always a good thing. So you can check out, yes, lisalobe.com or my socials at Lisa Loeb, except for Facebook, which is the official Lisa Loeb. And I think YouTube, which is official Lisa Loeb. Well, I'm officially grateful for you to come today. It was awesome. And uh, we're going to keep listening to the music and keep an eye on what's next for you. Don't lose the spark in your eyes. Keep your heart open wide. Go be a star. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing by the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Marcus Siniskalki, Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You're hearing that right. It's dot fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty.